Section 15 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Marrying for Money, Part 1. Halfway up Mount Blanc, two amateur mountaineers nearly came to blows with their alpenstocks. The guide's conception of the essential insanity of English nature was strengthened. The necessity of attending to the ascent interfered at points with the amenities of the dialogue, but they set in severely and steadily during the halt at the next chalet. It was not the condition of Europe or of the mountain that made a traveler's angry passions rise. They were not contradicting each other on the rate at which they observed the glaciers moving, nor were they arguing whether it was the duty of the Canton Council to pave the crevasses. The point in dispute was financial and moses fitzwilliams as treasurer of the bachelors club or solicitor to the treasury as some of us facetiously styled the briefless barrister evidently considered that his word was law his disputant had even more self-respect Tompas was neither a big bee bachelor nor a little bee bachelor but of the common or domestic variety of man he had a wife and a villa at camberwall and four children called him papa he was one of the myriad metropolitan taxpayers who were something in the city but nothing anywhere else. His life was as moral as a copybook. In politics, the standard agreed with him, and in religion he belonged to the Sunday school, the great sect which keeps its six days sacred to business. Once a year, Thomas's wife and family went to the seaside. Thomas went with them or to the continent alternately. Such men as Thomas are Britannia's bulwarks. Their heads are the real wooden walls of old England. As a confirmed family man, Tompas looked down on single men, deeming their views on any subject beneath discussion. Bachelors had not embedded themselves in the great framework of society, and their conclusions were vitiated by their aloofness from reality. Tompas spoke as if marriage were a furnisher or furbisher of intellect, and as if King Solomon had purchased his preeminence and wisdom by taking a quantity of it the financial question between him and moses fitzwilliams having reference to matters domestic Thomas's conversation naturally confined itself mainly to the reduplicated form of pooh while moses bleated bah like a cynical ram Thomas told moses quite frankly that the treasurer of the bachelors club was an ass and the lawyer spoke his mind quite freely in reply not even charging six and eight pence for the information that Thomas was an nincompoop throughout Thomas endeavored to shrivel up fitzwilliams with the lightning of his glance himself exposed the while to a cross-fire from moses's inharmonious eyes all the pother arose from the barrister's official position in the bachelors club as chancellor of the exchequer moses was preparing a paper for the next general court upon the financial aspects of marriage in this paper he intended to show how much money was annually wasted by people getting married he had calculated the sums dissipated by the inhabitants of the united kingdom and was ready to prove that if they had not entered it they would have amassed sufficient to pay the national debt and unshackle the country the minimum on which a man could marry was laid down by fitzwilliams at five hundred a year and he had investigated the whole literature of this evergreen subject in proof of his contention there were to be other statistics in the treasurer's paper which he did not conceal bade fair to be a classical contribution to the economics of marriage not even from a casual co-climber like Thomas did his singularly candid nature make any effort to conceal this probability but Thomas had a cantankerous carping disposition even though they were passing a nasty hole when moses broached the subject Thomas did not fall in with him 
but made careless and violent gestures of disapproval of his estimates it was sad that these two travellers could not learn from the peace of nature to be kind to each other overhead the sky shimmered lazily as if it were painted on canvas and had no work to do above them was pillowed tranquilly the furrowed forehead of the mountain with its big bald head unpacked even by the eagle at their feet the crevasses yawned sleepily alas the man alone should mar the nice prospect Thomas maintained obstinately that three hundred pounds a year was an ample income for a family man while five hundred pounds moses's matrimonial minimum was enough to enable him arithmetically not morally speaking to support two wives and families when the speculative financiers arrived at the top of mont blanc they quite forgot to look at the view a wrangle continued downhill Tompas was going to rome and moses was going to rowan but they altered their routes now so as to enjoy each other's society Tompas wanted badly to go to rome and moses had set his heart on rowan but as neither could sacrifice his own convenience to his companions they agreed to travel together to berlin so as to thresh out this thing thoroughly at an early stage of the duel Tompas called in a second he took it from his pocket-book it was a slip of crumbling newspaper this he unfolded lovingly and tenderly as one unwraps the face of an ancestral mummy and holding it firmly in his hand he bade fitzwilliams to gaze upon it it was an old newspaper cutting containing a table showing how a man with four children could live on two hundred and fifty pounds a year the table was stated to be an extract from a recent book on how to live on anything a year in a short review of this book the newspaper said that it was one of the ablest financial achievements of a year that starting from nothing a year it gradually worked its way up to a ducal income like a self-made millionaire the titles of the chapters were how to live on nothing a year how to live on a sovereign a year how to live on ten pounds a year and so on in ascending scale the tables were spread with equal hospitality for the rich and the poor but the two hundred and fifty pounder had been selected for quotation by the critic as the most generally interesting to its readers that table sir said Tompas, was my salvation he had been cravenly sniffling about the suburbs of matrimony disengaged to the sweetest girl god ever made when he came across it was a powerful piece of constructive finance sir said Tompas. broad and sweeping in conception minute and detailed in execution it was like an elephant's trunk sir which as you may be aware uproots an oak or picks up a pin the computer had put down that pin nor had he forgotten the oak in his furniture the moment i clapped my eyes on this paper i was a married man for understand the man of this table had only two hundred and fifty a year i had three hundred if he was so happy with his two fifty what joys would not be mine with three hundred which was fifty to the good to the bad sir to the bad asseverated moses solemnly looking earnestly to the right and the left simultaneously your logic is out even if a man with two fifty can marry it is quite impossible for a man with three hundred to do so for the bachelor with a smaller sum is ex hypothesi accustomed to grub along and so it does not matter whether he is married or single the man with a higher income being more exigent towards life is unable to sacrifice himself to the interests of posterity you're joking Tompa said that is news to me said moses politely 
you are so dull that you fancy you see a joke when you are bowled over. It is the last resource of little minds. No, sir, it is no joke, but a serious fact that the poor marry most nowadays. The higher a man's income, the less he can afford to marry on it. This is the main position of my forthcoming paper. Your reasoning, sir, as to the two-fifty and the three-hundred, involves a fallacy of simple inspection. It is on a par with the argumentation of the schoolboy who demonstrates, by crude rule of three, that if one man can do a piece of work in two days, two men can do it in one day. As a matter of fact, the two men will gossip or play nap, and the work will last four days. And with the silly wire drawing you hope to impose on my common sense? I have no such hope. But confound it, sir, you must have, or you wouldn't talk such paradoxical drivel. It is an insult to my common sense. I hope not, sir, said Moses with concern. I never abuse the absent. How can any man of common sense suppose that marriage could be undertaken on two fifty or three hundred a year? But that man, roared Pompous, I did undertake it. Quite so. That is just my point, sir. If you had been a man of common sense, you never would have supposed it could be done. "'But my supposition must prove sound, sir,' shrieked Tompas. "'Have I not a wife, and a family, and fifty pounds to spare, all on two-fifty a year? "'For I regulate my expenses strictly according to this table, sir,' he said, wrapping it reverently. "'We live in clover on two-fifty a year. "'We have not a single want ungratified. "'Such was the genius of our unknown benefactor, whom my little ones daily remember in their prayers.' We are happy as the day is long. With the extra fifty we are enabled to purchase all those luxuries which are necessary to persons in our station, including a summer's holiday. Tompas ceased, but kept his look of conscious rectitude. He belonged to that class of persons who make a virtue out of the most unpromising materials. And so you and that sweet girl married on the strength of this computation, said Moses huskily. Yes, replied Tompas though I was just a day late in getting the original sweet girl I mentioned before. If that book had only been reviewed a day earlier, I should have been a different husband. She got engaged an hour before the notice appeared. But being then brought up to marrying point, I asked another. And let me tell you, sir, I have never regretted it. I have lived in comfort and brought up my children to be credible citizens in the twentieth century." and all on the income which you, with your unpractical theories, declare to be utterly inadequate. Now, sir, what have you to say to that? I say that what you have done is impossible, and I will prove it. You say you have gone exactly by that table. Now that table is the most ridiculous collocation of haphazard figures ever jumbled together. But, sir, I have thriven by it. I have tested it. That trumps. Moses calmly swept off the trick. I drew it up. Drew? Nonsense, said Tompas. You agree with me already, observed Moses sweetly. Yes, I started life as a bookmaker, you know, for I only ate my dinners in the inner temple to get into journalism. I had nothing to live upon. I had to answer the problem how to get on in life. I wrote a book informing other people how to get on in life. It did not succeed, and I had to try another way. There was a temporary rage for household accounts. I fell in with a publisher who gave me ten pounds to write to Enchiridon that has guided your life. 
I was a young, unattached scapegrace, living in taverns and restaurants. My ideas of expense were as hazy as an heiress's. I had never lived much at home, and so had barely been present at the domestic squabbles over expenses. As for babies, I had but scant recollection of the expenses of my own equipment in life. Imagine, therefore, the hash these calculations must have been, and how, if you had really taken a leaf out of my book, could you have managed to escape ruin? Marriage must indeed be a failure, financially speaking, when run on the basis I recommended in my inner pan book. No, model your etiquette on my guide by a member of the aristocracy, if you will. Ride the high horse on my principles of equitation, if you like, and prognosticate your future life by my vaticination for the household, or the inoculation of truth by dreams, if such be your humor. But do not, oh, do not attempt to pilot the vessel of matrimony by the chart I drew up in my youth and turpitude. Out of the mouth of fools and the sucklings cometh forth wisdom, said Thomas sententiously. You are wiser than you calculate. If you really are the inventor of these invaluable calculations, I long to be better versed in them. I only know the table I married on. Do you mean to say that you never bought the book? How could I? I married immediately, and the expense of purchasing it was not allowed for in the estimate. So I have always felt an unappeased curiosity to know how to live on nothing a year. You will learn that secret from Thackeray and his Becky Sharp. A shorter way is to write the honest truth about any public man. How do you mean? You'll be sent to prison for indicting a false and malicious libel. If you play your cards well, you will be a first-class misdemeanant. I have taken a first class in journalism myself. It was the making of me. Tompas looks suspicious. And how can you live on a sovereign a year? By marrying her daughter. Oh, don't be absurd, cried Tompas pettishly. Reassure yourself I have no such intention. But don't you go away with the idea that you have achieved the impossible. You have read Balzac's Psychology du Mariage, of course? No, sir said Thomas hotly. I never read French books. Oh, I forgot. There is no translation. I beg your pardon. Well, anyhow, in this book you will find that Balzac excludes the greater portion of womankind from the connotation of the term femme. He sifts the fine flour from the bran and finds that for the purposes of romantic love only one woman in fifteen is a woman. Don't talk to me of love, sir. I'm a married man. Have patience. I was leaving love and coming to marriage. In the same way as Balzac refused to call most women women, I refused to call most marriages marriages. Certainly yours was no marriage. Sir! Only in a platonic sense, of course. It was no marriage. A union in which beggarly economies are the order of the day is no marriage. It is but bookkeeping by double entry. The wedded spirit, sir, must expatiate at large in the atmosphere of art and luxury. To make both ends meet is a tawdry occupation for immortal souls. I account no marriage such in the higher sense which is contracted on less than five hundred. Your defense on half that amount, sir, is a disgraceful retrogression to lower ideals. Why, sir, a hundred and fifty years ago some anonymous philanthropist, an ancestor to the spirit of McGillicuddy, the speaker bared his head reverently as he spoke the president's name, published a broad sheet entitled, forewarned forearmed or the bachelor's monitor 
being a modest estimate of the expenses attending the married life, and even in those primitive times when luxury had not attained a tithe of his present stature, a decent marriage was valued at an annual charge of five hundred ninety-four pounds. So well was this acknowledged, alike by friends and foes of the holy estate, that even the counterblast to it, which appeared in the same year under the name of the ladies' advocate or an apology for matrimony, did not attempt to eschew this liability, but only essayed to prove that whereas the first author had appraised the expenses of the bachelor life at eighty-seven pounds, they would really be two hundred thirty-eight pounds, so that the additional cost of matrimony would only be three hundred fifty-six pounds. A sum, mark you, sir, in excess of your entire allowance. Nay, more. Moses paused impressively and drew out a notebook in which he had jotted down miscellaneous materials for his great effort and continued. The author of the monition to bachelors says that his estimate, suppose that the married man actually receives two thousand pounds with his first wife and has, in the compass of fifteen years, eight children, four of which die and four only are alive at one time, two thousand pounds, sir, to start on, besides a moderate allowance of children, and then five hundred ninety-four pounds a year. I wish I had the allegorical tableau here, sir, which accompanied this profound calculation, and demonstrated the cheapness of celebrity through the medium of figures, with or without clothes or wings. I wish I could show you the feeble pictorial replay in which cupids with hymnal torches vainly endeavored to confute the original figures. If there be such a pamphlet, it is transparently absurd. One hundred fifty years ago the purchasing power of five hundred ninety-four pounds was much greater than now. And besides, as you rightly observe, there were not so many solicitations to expenditure. Who can take up the colossal catalogue of any self-respecting store without feeling that our facilities for spending money have kept pace with our improved methods of making it? Which strengthens my argument. If five hundred ninety-four pounds was a minimum for elegant living in 1741, this should be double as much now. In fixing it at five hundred pounds, I have yielded unduly to the contentions of the superficial. The bachelor minimum I take to be two hundred pounds. Even the lady's advocate would not make it more than two hundred thirty-eight pounds, though he made his bachelor a paragon of extravagance and made him spend no less than five pounds a year upon brushes, brooms, mops, and turners, and chandler's articles. But, sir, judge to the weakness of the case of the lady's advocate when he cants to the jury of marriage as the law of heaven and the land, the purpose of life, and the end of nature, a debt to the commonwealth and to the prosperity, and a justification of one's own parents. The bachelor's monitor keeps a far higher level of debate." never descending to ethical considerations he falls short of the mark rather than overshoots it for he assumes far too much moderation in the expenditure of the household imagine that essences powder hungary and lavender water elder flowers pomatums washes snuff etc only come to three pounds a year or that the Christmas donations of the pater familias are only three pounds heavier than those of the bachelor and what do you say to the generosity of a controversialist who expressly leaves out of account the following probable expenses probable save the mark country house or lodgings perhaps journeys to bath turnbridge scarborough chase and pair or one horse possibly saddle horse for the excursions riding habits etc 
card-playing an amusement that has banished the needle and many useful employments out of the modern education for ladies. Presences, watch, and equipage, jewels, rings, etc. Perhaps lapdogs, parrots, canary birds, etc. Today wives don't tell their husbands to go to bath. They want them to go much further. Our half-hearted monitor also admittedly says nothing of the chance of extravagance and other too common incidents which we forbear to mention out of tenderness to the ladies. Tenderness to the ladies, forsooth. What has a scientific economist to do with tenderness, or even with ladies? He is as dry as dust enough by now, observed Tompas with satisfaction. The ignorant, incompetent idiot. If he said a man couldn't marry on less than five hundred ninety-four pounds a year, he was either a liar or an ignoramus. He knew more about domestic economy than you. "'Can you tell me what your babies cost you a year?' "'Do you think I post up my babies separately?' "'Of course not,' said Moses contemptuously. "'You must go to a bachelor to know the cost of a baby. "'Lookers-on always see most of the game. "'Our glorious pioneer, the warning beacon fire "'that saved so many lives from social wreckage, "'was a specialist in babies, "'perhaps the most technical and mysterious branch of domestic economy.' He compiled the immortal baby catalogue for eight children of a year, old or under, often recruited, and numbers of most of the particulars. Did you know, sir, what a baby involves? In 1741, sir. And it probably involves twice as much now. It involved child bed basket, and pin cushion, and pins, and chimney line, and fine satin mantle, and sleeves for the christening, cradle and its furniture, biggins, headbands, caps, short stays long stays shirts waistcoats clouts beds blankets rollers mantles sleeves neckcloths shoes stockings coats stays frocks bibs quarter caps laced coral ribbons cap and feather cloak first coat and second dozens for the nurse anodyne necklace etc and how much mr tompas do you think this cost a year a hundred pounds replied tompas faintly ten guineas did I not say he handicapped himself too much, and yet he won hands down? Tompas was overwhelmed by this voice from the dead, this cry from the cradle of an earlier civilization. Though a father himself, his heart was not petrified, and his eye conjured up the ancient baby face swathed in biggins. He turned away and blew his nose. That day they wrangled no more. End of chapter 10, part 1